Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. <coughs> and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just had he, as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of God. morning. Well, here we are. If you have been at the past couple of nativity services, you have heard me get up here and enthusiastically talk about how much I love this time of year. And I could for three years in a row belabor the point. Christmas is the best time of the year. Advent, everything about it, I absolutely love. But I won't waste much time doing that. I'll just get right to the heart of it. I think as I was reflecting about why I love this time of year so much, apart from what we learn about Jesus, I think there's something to be said about ritual, about tradition, about the way it kind of taps into our rhythms and, and speaks to us. And I love rituals. I love that we have universal Christmas rituals, and even within those universal rituals, everybody's got their own take and their own spin and their own flavor. I love how everyone has their own family traditions and rituals. And one of mine is I watch the same set of Christmas movies every year. Every single year, there's four or five of them that I will not miss. And probably the first one that I watch every year 
is the Muppet Christmas Carol. Never miss a year without it. As a matter of fact, I've watched it three times already since mid-November. There's something about those fuzzy, smiling faces that really adds extra heartwarming adds an extra uh, warmth to our heart as we see Scrooge transition from miserly moneylender to second father to Tiny Tim. And I could go on and on about why this movie is brilliant, about why Dickens really captures something of Christmas. I, I won't, other than to say that Dickens actually taps into something very Christ-like, very Christian. Because I think when we think about Christmas, when we reflect on the life of Jesus, a lot of words come to mind. A lot of really deep, rich words. The first that typically comes to mind is grace. When we think about God, when we think about Jesus. And how could we not be overwhelmed with the incomparable grace of God when we, at Christmas time? When we see that God, creator, sustainer, director of the cosmos becomes a baby. He upon whom the entire universe is dependent makes himself dependent on his creation. Entirely dependent on his mother's body for his survival, for his sustenance. Entirely dependent on the work of his father's hands to provide for his family. Why? Well, so that he could identify with us in our lives. Christ knows what the day-to-day -day stress is like because he's lived in a family who had to worry about where the next meal was coming from. As he grew, he understood what it meant to learn, to grow in knowledge. He understood the complexities and social dynamics. He was probably bullied by his friends in school. Later, he learned about injustice. He learned about suffering, even to the point of death on the cross. And yet from all of this, him taking our human experience through death and resurrection and ascension, he gives us the reward of his work. It's gracious. Maybe the second word that comes to mind is glory. How can you read the Christmas story and not think about glory? Miraculous stars in the skies leading people across the known world at the time. Angels ripping open the heavens and declaring the glory of God. Because the Savior is born in the city of David. Grace, glory. But I think a word we often overlook when it comes to Christmas is generosity. To be generous. And what could be more generous of God than the gift of himself? So as I spent the past couple re weeks reading this text from 2 Corinthians 8 and thinking, how in the world does this have anything to do with Christmas outside of verse 9? My mind went to a Christmas carol. At the very beginning... Two portly men, Dickens says, show up on Scrooge's door and ask him to give to the charity and ask him to give to charity because it's natural this time of year to provide for those who don't have. Implicitly saying that just as Jesus gave himself to us at this time of year, we also ought to give to others. Because everything about the Christmas story drips and is drenched in generosity. Christ takes up 
our humanity. Like I said, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, making himself dependent on human beings so that he could sympathize with us, so that he could empathize with us. He knows what it's like to be hopeless and dependent. As he grew, he knew what it meant to be weak. He shows his generosity by the situation he takes up. In Matthew's gospel, we get this odd juxtaposition between two kings. When the wise men come and follow the star across the land, they show up to the place where you'd expect to find royalty, to a palace. And they find Herod. But you won't find this king in a palace. This king wasn't born into the royal nursery. No, this king was born in a spare room that did not belong to his family and laid into a trough where the household animals would have eaten. There's great humility in this. And when he chose to identify with us, even though he was a king, he wasn't born into a middle-class wealthy family. He was born into a working-class family. He would have been familiar with his father's workshop. He would have grown and apprenticed and become a laborer, having more in common with our workies than with our royal family. He's not for the, just the elite. He's for everyone. Even when God chooses to reveal that the Savior has been born, he doesn't go to the priestly families. He doesn't go to the king. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't even go to city center Bethlehem where Jesus is born. He goes out to the fields. He goes out to the shepherds. He goes out to those who live in the fields because they're perpetually unclean being around animals who might have been the last to hear that a Savior is born. They're the first to hear. This is the generosity of the child who lies in the manger. He has the entirety of the resources of the cosmos at his disposal and he makes himself dependent on a teenage mother, entering into a working class family, declaring himself to the commoner. You can't buy him. You can't bribe him. He needs nothing, but he gives everything. Now, this is what Paul reminds us in a very short verse, right in the middle of our passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I remember in the early days of the pandemic, the first lockdown, a bunch of celebrities and movie stars decided it would be really nice if they all cut together a video of them singing a nice song to make the world feel better and that we were all in it together. And so that's what they did. They cut from movie star to movie star, singing a song saying, hey, we're all in this with you. Now, the backlash was very quick and immediate. You're in this with us in your mansion with your bidets and all these amenities that you have. Some of you absconding to your yachts when you just can't take the big mansion and your huge garden anymore. Your millions and millions of dollars. We're all in this together. Nice try, they seem to say. You don't know what it's like to live to paycheck to paycheck. Working class families who don't qualify for furlough, not knowing if this pandemic is going to be the ruin of their family. And yet what makes Christianity unique 
And what has saved my own faith several times is this. Our plight is not foreign to God. He is not unsympathetic to our experience. God himself, in the person of Jesus, has experienced poverty. He's experienced hardship. He's experienced every piece of our human existence. Rather than sitting on high and making demands of us that seem impossible, he enters into our story, makes our problem his problem, and solves it from the inside. This is the incredible truth lying before us in a manger. So what then is our response? Generosity. Like Dickens reminds us, if we're going to live in the true spirit of Christmas, in the true spirit of this babe we find in the manger, it means one thing, living generously. I love the pastoral nature of this call to to be generous. Notice that Paul isn't laying a command on anyone. In verse 8, he says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And we learned several things about generosity along the way. Paul tells us that generosity signifies a complete faith. Generosity signifies a complete faith. Notice the list he commends about the church at Corinth. He says, you are excelling in faith, speech, and knowledge, and yet they're lacking something. And as I thought about these three things in particular, I scratched my head a little bit. Faith, speech, and knowledge. Well, we hear lots of testimonies in our church. We see lots of baptisms. We've heard about faith in our midst. Speech, <laughs> Our preaching team is stacked. There's lots of people who can stand up here and who can wax eloquently about the Bible and about the gospel and about the good news of Jesus. Knowledge. I'll avoid eye contact with all the people who have lots of spare letters after their name who are sitting here just now. The list is interesting. Sounds familiar. And yet, is there something lacking? We seem to have everything, but how are we doing with our generosity? Is our faith complete? Do we fling open our resources at the sign of need? Now, Paul notices that the Macedonian church didn't give because they were wealthy. In fact, he says their overflowing joy in their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There's a myth I've discovered. Some people think that generosity is tied to circumstance. In other words, if I had more, I would give more. I was interested to learn a few years back, and I'm not sure if it's still true, but at least at the time, in the United States, the poorest state per capita was Mississippi. And yet the most generous state proportional to household income was Mississippi. Generosity doesn't seem to flow from circumstances. Generosity flows from faith. We shouldn't be thinking about generosity in proportion to our finances, but generosity in proportion to our love for God. Because the Macedonian church gave themselves, quote, first to the Lord. We're reminded of this in the life of Jesus. Remember the rich young man that comes to 
Jesus in Mark chapter 10. It says something very interesting. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This man who has received wealth from family understands that eternal life must be something that he receives as well. And after a back and forth about the law, Jesus says you're still lacking one thing. Again, an interesting thing to say to someone who has it all. You're lacking one thing. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. The man went away sad. Because very few facets of life demonstrate the posture of our hearts as much as how quickly and how readily we are to give. And it seems, sometimes it seems impossible. There's something about a call that to give until it hurts that doesn't seem like we can do it. And of course, of course it does. Because when Paul is describing the Macedonian church, he said they received a grace that God has given them. Quote, grace that God has given the Macedonian church. One commentator calls this type of generosity a visible sign of an invisible grace. So the second thing we learn about generosity is that God gives the spirit of generosity. Because I don't think any of us are naturally generous people. I don't think when the plea goes out to give, we think, okay, well, if I just gave up my Netflix or I I turned off these other things, then I have a little bit more to give. None of us tend to naturally think that way. And in such, we need a healthy dose of God's spirit. If we go back to the rich young ruler, you remember that Jesus, when he was dealing with this man, the text says he looked at him and loved him. It wasn't a strong rebuke that Jesus was giving him. It was an open invitation to a life with him. And so when the rich young man leaves, Jesus starts lamenting, oh, how difficult it is for someone who's wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so his disciples ask the obvious question, well, if it's that difficult, who can be saved? And Jesus quips, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Generosity, like any other piece of our faith, must be supplied by God because our hands naturally hold tightly to tangible signs of security. We think it makes us safe, but in actuality, it puts us in jeopardy. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really, it's finding its place in him. And it leads us to our final thought. Generosity leads to gospel equality. Generosity leads to gospel equality. The church in Judea was hard-pressed at the time. The church in Corinth was wealthy. Paul states that his intention isn't that the church in Corinth should become poor so that Judea could become wealthy again. He's just pointing to the fact that generosity begets and breeds more generosity. And that being a part of the family of faith means that we give generously to our brothers and sisters, knowing that at some point in time, we might need to be the recipients of generosity. This church in Judea was the mother church. It was the church that birthed the movement. The church in Corinth, for, to some extent, owed its very existence to this other church. 
And someday, Paul says, you might struggle as well. You might find yourself pressed in hard times through famine or through various other things. Because the nature of the world is that there's times of plenty and there's times of want. We can see this now in our own cost of living crisis. And brothers and sisters are generous to their brothers and sisters, knowing that one day, if in times of need, they can call on their brothers and sisters as well. So Paul uses this odd quote from Exodus, referring to the gathering of food when God was dumping it out every night while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Everyone had exactly what they needed. Now, it seems odd that he's making this point, but what he's saying is God has given you everything that you have. Some have less, some have more. But it's not a sign of grace or a sign of disgrace. Those who have a lot are to give so that they don't have too much. And those that have little receive so that they don't have too little. And we actually discover that this dependency is a gift. We are, on, we are dependent upon each other because some have more and some have less. Because when God built the church, he established a family. Now I can tell you nine years worth of stories where I thought that life was about to hit the rocks. But it was the brothers and sisters here and abroad who saw the family through. And now in a position to give, we try to give as well and as best we can because God has stirred it up in our hearts. Because generosity breeds generosity. There's a supernatural reciprocity in this. As Jesus gives his divine eternal resources to us, we in likeness turn our resources out to each other. And we become like him. And we find ourselves back where we started, in a manger. Our generosity finding its source in a baby. He who made everything made himself dependent on others. And in the work, of, in the work where he made himself dependent, he becomes sympathetic to our dependence. To borrow a sentiment from the early church, Christ became dependent on humanity so that humanity could learn to be dependent on him. He gave himself generously to us, and when we give generously, others see him in us. It feels odd when I'm watching a Muppet Christmas Carol to fight back tears from the words of Kermit the Frog. But I do. When Bob Cratchit comes home from church on Christmas and his wife asks him, how was Tim today? Tim, of course, being near death. And he said, he's amazing. He said he likes to be at church this time of year because it's good at Christmas to be reminded of him who made the lame walk and the blind see. And I wonder, I just wonder, when the, when the outside world looks at us and they see us giving and giving and giving and giving in ways that don't make sense, do they see Jesus? A God who gives himself in a way that seems counterintuitive. A God who doesn't make demands but makes himself dependent on us so that we can become dependent on him. So that we can learn to give to those the way he has given to us. What does the outside world see? 
Lord, make us the kind of people who give. When we hear of need, we don't say how much, but we just say how. We ask this in Jesus' name.